Turn in your copy of God's Word to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. You'll be reading the first five verses. That assurance of pardon from Isaiah 9, people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Um, It's a great contrast to the darkness of our own hearts. I thought that was great. Isaiah 2. Chapter, uh, verses 1 through 5, uh, when I am finished reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond, thanks be to God. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning again. Well, thank you for making your way to church this morning to worship our living God. He is worthy of the risk of driving in snow to be worshiped with his people. Amen. Good, let's pray together. Gracious Father, your word is more valuable than pure gold. It is sweeter than honey. As we turn to your scripture now, Lord, use your word of truth to deepen our faith and enhance our joy in worshiping you. We come this morning in need of your grace. We come this morning in need of your instruction. May we walk in the paths as one who walks behind the light of the world who leads us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning marks our fifth week in the book of Isaiah, which means this is our fifth sermon And we are still in the introduction phase of presenting the themes of the book as a whole. The book of Isaiah, for those who haven't been tracking with us, opens with a courtroom scene, with a holy condemnation of Israel for failing to be true worshipers of their covenantal God. Listen, the priests have lost their way, and the nation worships without zeal for God, we're told. For their sacrifices are gross to God. Their offerings, God calls them vain. And God says he hides his eyes and he closes his ears to their worship. God's people need a priest to lead them back into true worship. God uses Isaiah to be his prophet to rebuke the nation for rejecting him outright. Israel has despised the Holy One of Israel. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. 
It's not that they have ignored God. It's that they hated God. We're speaking of Israel. This is God's condemnation on his people. You have hated me. You have blasphemed my name. You have rejected me and, and cursed me. You're supposed to be my people. Israel warns, uh, Isaiah warns Israel to repent. And instead of repenting and following the, the truth of this prophetic word, what do they do to Isaiah? According to tradition, they, they kill him. They saw his body in half. Israel needs a prophet who can change the hard hearts and teach them to walk with God. God also chastises Israel's rulers and their kings for being unrighteous judges of his people. This is, I'm still just covering chapter one, church. And at this point, the judgment is true. They are a guilty people who need a righteous king. Where is the hope for God's people? Our passage this morning reveals their hope. Their hope is found in the one that's condemning them. God will himself be a perfect prophet, priest, and king for his Israel. But even more than this, as Isaiah will direct us to this morning, God will not limit this threefold office of blessing to the unrighteous nation of Israel. His worshipers will go far beyond the gates of Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And on that day, God's worshipers will go forth from the Holy Land and make disciples of all nations. On that day, they will go forth teaching the world God's ways and helping them to observe and walk in the light of God. I suggest this morning that Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4, which we just read, is actually a sneak peek into the glorious blessing of what the Great Commission is for his people. Our encouragement this morning, church, is this, that the Great Commission that we know in the New Testament is more than just the mission of the church, though it is fully the mission of the church. But we'll see that the Great Commission is God's providential blessing to us when we really deserve condemnation. So I ask three things of you this morning, which will also serve as our outline. Are you walking in the light of your priest? Are you walking in the light of your prophet? And are you walking in the light of your king? Church, walk in the light of your priest. Let's turn to the, the word of Isaiah, chapter 2, verse 1. And the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah in Jerusalem. I just want to make a quick note on this verse. It's strange for us to read that Isaiah saw the word of God, since we usually say you hear a word of God. This arouses the imagination to the mystery of God's revelation. His word always comes with power. Once God spoke before humans were even created. None were there to hear the word of God, none to respond, yet because there was none. And yet God spoke, and there was light. And today we will see that the heavens declare the handiwork of a God who speaks. 
Let's read now the word that Isaiah saw. Verse 2, it shall come to pass. Again, we must stop. (laughs) There's a lot going on in this passage, so there'll be a little bit of whiplash in the beginning, but we will get there. It shall come to pass. Church, we need to pause and consider these five words. We're now entering clear, prophetic territory, and a promise is coming. This is God's word, and what follows will happen because God will bring it to fruition. It shall come to pass. None will stop his will. Nothing can change it. So get excited because something is going to be said that from our perspective in time has either already happened, is happening, will happen, or a mixture of all of it. God is truth, God is faithful, and God is trustworthy. These are some of his unchangeable attributes. He is the rock of ages. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. Stop again. What are the latter days? You may have seen this phrase before in your Bibles. I don't think it's that complicated, though. It's simply Isaiah directing his, his audience to future events that could either be close or far off or a mix. Again, this is prophetic language. But unlike Isaiah's listeners, we know today in the New Testament age of the church that the last days speak of the kingdom of Christ or the church age. Let me explain. History can be broken into just a few pieces from a biblical theological perspective. In Isaiah's day, there would be just three phases in their understanding. There would be the Old Testament phase, and then a Messiah would come, and then it would be the latter days. But from our perspective in in world history, we have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament, we actually see even more. From our perspective, we see that it's the Old Testament age, the first advent of the Messiah, the latter days, what we call the church age, and then the second advent of the Messiah. Are you tracking? So it shall come to be in the latter days. Do you know where we are in this story, guys? We're in our age, the church age, where Isaiah and company were looking forward to the Messiah's arrival. We look forward to the second arrival of the Messiah. In the time that we are in, let's call ourselves the second Advent seekers, we are in the last days. Because when Jesus returns again, there will be a final judgment. There will be no more days ahead. There will just be eternal glory. We're not there yet. We're in the last days before that glory. Is that clear? I hope so. Verse 2. Now let's read the whole verse in completion. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. In the time after the Messiah, the mountain of the Lord will be exalted. It will be lifted. It will be established as the chief of all the mountains. This imagery, church, of mountains would not be lost on Israel. It wouldn't even be lost on the surrounding nations, in fact. Often in that day, 
gods of nations were identified with geographical mountains. An easy example of this would be Mount Olympus. But this practice was by no means restricted to Greek mythology. It was a common practice in ancient days. And the God of Israel's mountain is said to be raised above all of the other mountains, meaning that Yahweh will unmistakably be exalted above all nations, all powers, and all peoples. This mountain, as we will soon read, is Mount Zion. Zion is a literal mountain in Jerusalem, just west of the Temple Mount. But often, Zion means much more than just that mountain. It's a title given to the entire people group of Jerusalem, the place where the presence of God once rested in the temple, and he was worshipped. This will be reestablished as the God of all gods. In Isaiah's day, the great nations would be nations such as Egypt or Assyria, soon to be Babylon. But is saying that even these nations will become trivial in comparison would be shocking to Israel. What we're reading about, church, is not nationalistic pride. We're reading about worship. Whose God will be exalted? Whose worship will be established forever? Imagine how this proclamation was received for for Isaiah's people. We know what they were like, and they're hearing this. Isaiah, so you're saying that the worship of the God of Israel will actually be spread throughout the whole world? Yahweh? Are you joking? (laughs) Isn't that the God of that puny small hill in Jerusalem? Wait, doesn't Israel despise their God? How will that God be the God that's raised up above all others? But when God does exalt himself as the God of all nations, we're told that men and women will consider their worship of Yahweh as even more important than their own national identity. Once man attempted to build a tower to the heavens, and God scattered them. But in the last days, God will do a reversal. He will lift up a mountain of his worship, and the scattered peoples will return throughout all the world. In fact, we read that the nations will flow up a mountain. But how will these people who are guilty of their sins, people from distant nations who worship idols, how will they come to flow and worship the one true covenantal God of Israel? The answer, church, Christ the promised Messiah, who is the great high priest who makes it possible. The role of a priest is to be a mediator between God and people. They offer intercession on behalf of people to God. They make sacrifices as gifts of atonement and as modes of worship to him. Jesus, as the final great high priest, mediated on behalf of God's people by offering the perfect sacrifice his own perfect body. We studied Hebrews. Let me remind you of a few things that we read. Hebrews 11.10 states that we have been sanctified, meaning we have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Through faith in Jesus' death, his 
sacrifice to God on our behalf for ruined sinners. We are given confidence to draw near to the throne of grace on that holy mountain, Hebrews 4. Jesus, as the way, the truth, and the life, has thrown open the curtain of God's glory. And his people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation will flow to him. Because of him and for him, his glory. Church, walk in the light of your prophet. He has opened the way to his holy mountain for you. Next, we are to walk in the light of our prophet. I, excuse me, I meant priest before, and now we're, we're on to prophet. Church, walk in the light of your prophet. Let's go to verse 3. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Access to the mountain of the house of the Lord has been opened, and we're told many peoples shall go to the house of the God of Jacob to be taught and to become obedient. This probably would have been astounding to Isaiah's audience. Our God will be the God of the nations around us, and many peoples will come here? Yes, because Yahweh is the God of heaven and earth. But just because there is access to God, my question is, why? We have access, but why would we go? I suggest here, grace. Grace is the work of God. It is the overflow of his love according to his perfect will. Grace is not caused nor generated by the desires of man. It is a free gift of God that changes the affections of man. Why would someone want to go and learn from God? Because their affections have been changed by God. This is grace. We all know the benefits of receiving gifts. An earthly inheritance may make one rich. Education may make, make us intelligent. Or taking medicine may make us feel well after a sickness. But only the gift of grace can make you a saint before God. Only the blood of Jesus can cleanse you of your sins. Only the gift of faith can restore your relationship to your creator. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but I have been found. I once was blind, but now I can see. We don't find ourselves. We don't heal ourselves but we are found and healed by grace. Thomas Watson says this, grace is Christ's portrait drawn on the soul. Grace is Christ's portrait drawn on the soul. Church, to go before our creator, unworthy to stand because of our sin and our guilt, but our creator looking back on us and seeing our soul, and there he sees Christ. This changes us. And we respond to this change of grace in us with an outflow of worship. We go and seek the Lord now where we have ignored or even despised him before. And then we see the life change of the redeemed. What do they say? They say this. 
Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. They're sharing the gospel. They're bringing others with them. They don't go alone, but they encourage others. And they go as together to the mountain of the Lord as one body. They believe that the house of God is where they need to be. They must be there together. And their desire is to bring many with them along the way. And look at what they're hungry for, church. What are they craving when they go to the house of the Lord? They want to learn from God. They want the Lord's instruction. They want the word. Do you see it, church? Do you see it here? In the last days, the people from all nations will go together in seeking truth. I believe that we're talking about the word preached in this text, church. The word that's feasted upon by hungry sinners. And they feast on the word because it leads them to something. Obedience. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, they say. That he may teach us his ways. And that we may walk in his paths. Christ, our incarnate word, instructs us in his revelation. Still even more, as theologian Louis Burkhoff explains, Jesus continues to guide us in his offices of prophet by the operation of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' own words on the purpose and power of the Spirit, he says this, the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and in judgment. John 16. How do we walk in the paths of God? We walk in his paths when we know what his paths are. And by his assistance along our journey. Where the Old Testament people of God rejected the prophets, those in the latter days will not only flow to the prophets, but they'll bring others with them to the prophet. This is what it looks like, church, to walk in the light of your prophet. In verse 4, our final point, church, walk in the light of your king. Remember, this prophet, priest, and king will be that perfect person, the perfect mediator that Israel needed all along. Verse 4, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. With the perfect king in place, we will experience a peace that the world cannot create or even offer. The king will be a judge who leads his people and nations into a unity. Remember in Isaiah 1, church, the rulers of that day were corrupt and they were out for themselves. But Christ will always be for his people. Where the kings of Israel fail, Christ will always succeed. And when you hear that he will be a judge, don't think about him primarily as a judge who deals out a final punishment. Though, he will do this at his second advent. Instead, think of him as a peacemaker judge, one who mediates and guides and leads people into harmony. What we all desire. 
What good parents let their children whom they love live at war with one another in their home? Parents here will understand this. We decide disputes because of our love for our children. It's because of the love that Jesus has for his church that he will reconcile us to God and one another. The Apostle Paul speaks of this very thing in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. He, Christ himself, is our peace, Paul says, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing that hostility. That is what our king has done. That is what our prophet has done. And that is what our priest has already done for us. The both that Paul is speaking here is, is Jew and Gentile. But the point is clear to us. That Jesus, our king, does what no nation or government or peace treaty could ever do. Because he is the mountain that is exalted And the worship of him exceeds our nationalistic citizenship. He becomes our peace. We no longer see our neighbor as a threat. But we see our neighbor as an opportunity to love. What a switch. We are to love. What a switch by grace. When we have no enemies, there is no need for weapons. We are a peaceful people who turn the other cheek. Jesus says in Matthew 5, You have heard it said, love your, enemy, lo- sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So we hammer our swords into plows. We turn our spears into pruning hooks. Why? Because the harvest is plentiful. Instead of learning the ways of war, church, our hope is fully in our king. This is fantastic news. In fact, this is the very thing that is proclaimed about Jesus at his first advent. You could turn to Isaiah 9 if you'd like. You'll know these words. This is our prophet, priest, and king. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, because he is a king. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor or Judge, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. I really love how the King James Version changes that last line of verse 4 and says that we will never again learn war. It's all, it's It's finished for the people of God. This is what our king has done for us. So walk in his light. Our final verse this morning, verse five says, 
O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the lights of the Lord. To round this out, what is it to walk in the lights? Isaiah turns his attention from other nations back to Israel here in this text. Verses 2 through 4, we're speaking of other nations. Now Isaiah is looking at his own people. It is as if he's saying here, do you see what God is going to do with the nations around us? In these many peoples, do you too want to miss out on this blessing? O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord, he says. First, walking with the Lord requires one to flow to the promises of the Messiah, to the Savior, to the light who has come into the darkness. And second, walking with the Lord requires one to know God's truth as they are to live in that truth and walk on that path. Church, in closing, this prophecy is encouraging in so many ways. As we have considered this morning, Jesus is the prophet who draws people to the mountain of the Lord. Jesus is the priest. I messed up. Jesus is the priest who makes the way open to draw people to the mountain of the Lord. Jesus is the prophet who teaches his ways on the mountain of the Lord. And Jesus is the king who judges and protects us perfectly from the mountain of the Lord. And we saw that the people and the nations who are brought to the mountain of the Lord by grace are also taught at the mountain of the Lord and ruled over from the mountain of the Lord. These are great commission peoples. You may follow in Matthew 28 if you want, but let me remind you of the great commission. Who are the people in Isaiah 2, uh, 2, 2 through 4? They are enthusiastic evangelists. Isaiah says, people from all nations, come, let us go together to God. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples means bring people to me with you. They are the people of Isaiah 2, 2 through 4 are true worshipers. Isaiah says that we may learn from God and that we may be obedient. Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Not just teaching and learning, but teaching and learning that leads to obedience and worship. The people of Isaiah 2 through 4, 2, 2 through 4 are foremost citizens of Jesus' kingdom. Isaiah says, and he shall judge between the nations. And Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So I invite you all this morning, whether you believe in Christ or if you've not yet confessed that Christ is your Lord and Savior, but you now see that he is worthy to be your Lord and your God, and you feel that desire to, to bow the knee to the king, I invite you, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. What is it to go to Christ church? John Flavel, a Puritan Presbyterian minister, sums it up so well in his catechism. He says this, but what is it to go to Christ? To go to Christ is to embrace him in his person, in his offices, prophet, priest, and king, and to rest entirely and closely upon him for pardon of sin and for eternal life, being deeply sensible of the want and worth of him.
Church, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this prophetic word that we have seen with our own eyes come to fruition. You are doing a work in drawing all nations to yourself. By your grace and your blessing of sacrifice that you've made on our behalf, you have made a way and you have changed our affections. Lord, I pray that we are men and women who wake up in the morning and think, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Throughout the day, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. At night, before we sleep, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. To you be the praise, honor, and glory. In Christ's name, amen.